we can get this thing rolling. Uh, welcome back to Reformed Informants. Reformed Informants is a podcast devoted to biblical exposition, systematic theology, and practical application for the good of the church. I'm Lance Burroughs, along with TJ Darty, and we're the Reformed Informants. Well, we're glad to have you back. Uh, looking forward to this episode. Uh, we're going to switch things up just a bit, uh, as opposed to looking at um, the, the scripture from a systematic point of view, drawing out what we need to draw out to build a systematic theology. Uh, we're actually going to exposit and look at a particular portion of the New Testament, in particular uh, Acts chapter 17. Lance, are systematic theologians allowed to do that? Are we allowed to... We are allowed to branch out a okay. little bit. Okay. Would you say maybe that doing biblical exposition like this is, in some sense, a requirement of systematic theology? Like, we have to be able to adequately exposit, which, by the way, that word exposit just means to expose, right? To expose the meaning of a text. But we have to adequately um, interpret these texts of Scripture. Right. You say, like, that's part of, this is the behind the scenes um, undergirding of systematic theology. Right, yeah. they, They go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. I think it's healthy, generally speaking, to be able to work through systematic theology, but to also be able to handle one verse, to handle Mm -hmm. a passage of Scripture, to handle a chapter, or to handle a book, uh, because, again, it forces you to take the whole counsel of God. It forces you from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that you can have one without the other. And essentially, that's what the podcast is geared towards anyways. We don't want to... You know, be completely locked in um, and chained and bound to systematic theology only. We want to also show different um, ways of understanding and approaching and drawing out from the scriptures uh, what what is necessary for the glory of God and for, yeah, for would, Christian living. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, we we talked about that early on, right? Like systematic theology has limitations, um, but this is as we look at um, a particular biblical passage, we are looking at understanding. Um, this, um, the context and the meaning in this passage, and this passage will then help to inform our systematic theology. Yeah, right? absolutely. Like so, so why Acts seventeen? Yeah, well, we want to gear this episode. Rather, I, I can't talk there. That's we want okay. to gear this episode. We can, we can chop that up towards I'm sure. Lance's production. No, he, I'm, he's I'm, a magician with this stuff. It's I'm amazing. Him Garage Band. He he, he tells so me he tells me every time I make a mistake. Don't worry, I'll fix it. Like he just <laughs> so he gives me complete freedom to say whatever I want, and it comes out much better. So yeah, uh, yeah, you can do that to yourself for once. I will. I'm gonna okay. go back. And All right. Fix so that. so this episode, I cut you off. Uh, I don't even know what you were saying now. Yeah, well, we, we've we got the opportunity from time to time, TJ and I do, to be able to teach at our churches. And um, TJ, uh, just the other weekend, was able to open up the Word um, to Acts 17. And basically, did you exposit the whole chapter? I did, over over two weeks. Okay, it was, so it was a two-week study. It was a study. part one, part two. Right. Uh, little, uh, and really it could have been like three or four weeks because there's so much depth there. Um, but I only had two, so I had to do the, yeah. whole, the whole thing in two it, it was limited time. Right. Um, so yeah, TJ went, went through basically a two part series for Acts chapter 17, which there are texts in Acts chapter 17 that tie in perfectly mm. to bibliology. Mm. Um, so we're working through a little mini series here on bibliology 
Acts 17 fits into that. So we thought that we would work through Acts 17, uh, more so TJ, because he's just recently been studying that entire chapter. Um, I'm not sure I agreed to that, by the way, but okay. I'll we'll throw in some questions and uh, a few side notes, footers uh, here and there. But but anyways, uh, yeah, we're going to basically overview the book of Acts and okay. then dive into 17. Yeah. So. Um, okay, well... If we're going to look at Acts 17, we've, we've discussed a little bit um, previously about the need to understand context, to be able to adequately um, interpret and understand a, a verse or passage of Scripture, right? Like we're not going to read Genesis 1 the same way we read the Psalms, the same way we read um, apoc- apocalyptic literature, um, the same way we might read a letter, right? Like they are all different genres, um, but the, the guiding interpretive hermeneutical principle is that we want to understand the author's intended purpose, the author's meaning so that we can draw that out. Right. So we look at the book of acts, um, broadly speaking, um, Luke is writing in order to uh, validate and verify what he has previously reported in his gospel, right? Like the book of acts is a, um, part two connected to the gospel of Luke and the driving purpose, I think in, Luke's writing is to demonstrate the triumph of the gospel. So the the good news of Christ is established his life, uh, death and resurrection and and even ascension at the end of the gospel of Luke. Right. That's the good news. And then he validates and demonstrates how the gospel continues and triumphs out into the world um after the ascension of Christ. That's why the ascension um, kind of bookends. It's the end of the Gospel of Luke. It's the beginning of the book of Acts. And so the, the mission statement or kind of the theme verse that structures around the, the book of Acts is the uh, chapter 1, verse 8, right, where Jesus says um, that you shall be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit has come upon you um, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And so the book of Acts is kind of built around that. Yeah, um, yeah, it is. It, once you navigate through 28 chapters in Acts, it is literally built off that right. verse. The gospel right. goes out to the Jews in Acts 2. The Lord adds many to the church. We get on to Acts chapter 8. The gospel yep. goes out to the Samaritans, 10, the Gentiles, and then it just keeps spreading right. like a wildfire until Acts 28. You know, right, Paul, Paul's in Rome. Paul in Rome. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah, exactly. You, you, you just look at the geographical locations within the book of Acts, and you'll see this exact thing played out, right? The first seven chapters are in Jerusalem. And then you mention Acts 8. Um, there comes persecution, right? The apostles have to scatter. They go to everybody other than the 11 leaves, and they go to Judea and Samaria begins to um, filter out concentric circles on its way out from Jerusalem. And then you have these missionary journeys, right? So where we are in Acts 17 is actually the second missionary journey. Um, you, you've got, you've had the um, extension of the gospel to the Gentiles. You've had the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. And now we're in uh, the missionary journey, the second missionary journey. Um, and it begins, the second missionary journey actually begins with Paul and Barnabas separating. Uh, and this is important because it brings in a new character, right? They separate over um, Mark. Right. Uh, Mark, what happened? Well, what, what was Mark's deal? Poor old blessed Mark. He, <laughs> he wasn't essentially, he, he um, I think MacArthur calls him a deserter. Yeah. And he, yes. he, I think the title of actually MacArthur's message, just off the top of my head, I remember 
uh, listening to this one about a decade ago. It's called The Restored Deserter. Mm-hmm. You know, basically the, he had left Paul on a missionary journey yeah. or a previous journey and kind of, you know, <laughs> kind of left him hanging or yeah. abandoned him. So Paul and Barnabas, you know, or I don't know. Yeah, they're arguing over Yeah, they've right? got a little argument, a little yeah. dispute. Yeah, missions 101, don't desert the other missionaries. <laughs> but Mark does that. So Paul and Barnabas, uh, Paul doesn't think he's reliable. Barnabas sticks his neck out for him. And Paul says, you know what? That's fine. You can have Mark. Get out of here. Y'all go somewhere else. Which, of course, we can see that God is sovereignly multiplying the missions force. Um, and so Paul takes uh, Silas with him. They also join Timothy, uh, Timothy joins with them, and they, at the beginning of Acts 16, they sense that the Lord has called them through a vision um, to the region of Macedonia. Right. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, so jump six, in. Jump 16 in. is where Paul is basically interacting with Lydia, mm-hmm. and the Philippian church is essentially birthed. In, in, in chapter 16. That's exactly right. Um, and what happens to Paul and Silas from preaching? You know, they're they're arrested and they're beaten. And then, of course, you have the Philippian jailer and, and the miraculous, uh, the the shaking of the earth and all this stuff that happens. And But these men have now been beaten um, and mercilessly so. And that's how... Um, their time in Philippi is kind of documented by by Luke. And then we jump into Acts 17. Okay, so now we've kind of set the stage. This is what's going on. This is where they're... And 17 begins. It says, when they had passed through um, these cities of Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Well, we just read those verses and, okay, you know, they went to Thessalonica. Well, they they walked 100 miles um, <laughs> after having been... 100 miles? Is that- 100, 100 miles. About 30, uh, 30 to 35 miles. On paved roads? Of course. Like- yeah, they, yeah, they were in their uh, smart cars just darting around, probably stayed at the uh, Holiday Inn on the way. Yeah. Um, no, but see, these men took the gospel um, all the way through those first two cities. Luke doesn't give us any detail. They passed through them, and they came to Thessalonica um, in 17.1, Acts 17.1. And what is, Lance, you're looking at the text there with us. Why does why did they pass the first two, but they stop in Thessalonica? Yeah, the end, end of one says that, uh, there was a synagogue of the Jews. Yeah. So for Paul, I mean, the, you know, he, he is just stoked, hyped, like literally about the opportunity to be able to go into this synagogue. And then verse two tells us essentially what his custom was. Okay, what is that? So why why is Paul so excited? Why does he pass through a couple of places, by the way, who need the gospel, Right, like it's not that he went through Amphipolis and Apollonia and said, "Oh, everybody here is saved. Nobody right. here needs the gospel." And of course, we don't know. Perhaps Paul stepped in there and preached uh, magnificent sermons, but Luke doesn't tell us that because Luke is interested in taking us to Thessalonica to tell us what is going on here. He is showing us how the gospel triumphs in this uh, this first century world, and he's verifying to Theophilus and his other readers that the good news that he has recorded previously is in fact valid. It is in fact um, continuing to move forward. Right. So why th- why is he so excited about the synagogue? What 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 gets him revved up? that he's going to pass through others and so that he can get to Thessalonica for the synagogue. Yeah, well, I think that in, in the back of Paul's mind is when he goes into the synagogue, those that are in the synagogue are going to have a basic understanding uh, of 
Old Testament text, which is exactly what he's going to go to, to now basically show that Jesus Christ is the culmination of those particular texts and that the gospel that he's preaching, the gospel that he used to hate, is indeed coming from the exact scriptures that he would have claimed that he had devoted himself to previously. Is it fair to say that Paul is going to do in those synagogues through the Old Testament text, he's going to do exactly what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And what is what does Jesus do on the road to Emmaus? Yeah, well, what's consistent. Um, yeah, Paul's efforts are consistent with Jesus's. Mm-hmm. And I think Luke highlights that, man. Exactly. That's why, you know, we're talking Gospel of Luke and Acts, Volume 1 and 2. I mean, Luke is emphasizing this, that Jesus and Paul are reasoning with whomever they're in contact with from the law, the Psalms, and the prophets, or from the scriptures uh, th- that it says, yeah. talking about you know, all of those texts that concern Christ, in particular Luke 24, but I mean, that is where Paul is going here. That's exactly right. And, and so Luke tells us it was his custom, this is how Paul, Paul had a, a natural audience in the synagogue, right? Like, Paul is a Jew of all Jews. He has a reputation. He um, he can step into a Jewish synagogue and get a natural audience. People are already gathering. They're already gathering to worship, and they are gathering to understand and worship God through the Old Testament scriptures. So he he has a natural audience there. The and table he, is set. Ex- exactly. The ball's on the tee, and here comes the big heavy hitter, right? He's walking up. It's time for him to now bring forth the truth of the gospel. And it says that he reasoned with them. We've actually uh, referenced this before, that the, this word that he reasoned with them, it, it carries the idea that he, um, it, it, it actually has a cognate in the English language of dialogue. So he's conversing with them. He's So it wasn't a uh, three-point sermon with a little hymn and an invitation and then a potluck afterwards. Right. It's a, he's a, he's having a conversation with them. He's fielding questions. He's presenting um, a case from the scriptures. Luke is highlighting the necessity of the scripture. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, first Peter chapter three comes to mind when Peter writes that we are we're supposed to be able to give a defense mm. or an account uh, for what we believe. Uh, this is what Paul is doing here. He, he's able to preach. He's able to teach. He's able to have a Q&A. He's able to have a dialogue. It, again, he's not jumping in for five minutes and then jumping out. He's He is reasoning. It, would you say then that verse 3, when Luke says that he is explaining and proving to them, that's exactly what he's doing. I mean, right? the language is it, the language is so beautiful. It's he's right, explaining it's right there. and demonstrating. He is yes. making a demonstration. Literally, the Greek means he is setting it before their eyes. Uh, in other words, this is truth that they are looking at but not seeing. Right? Like he's going to demonstrate to them that the Christ or the promised Messiah had to. It was necessary. He had to suffer. Their conception, what was the Jewish conception of the Messiah? What did they expect? Well, they were expecting, you know, and and to some degree they were right about a kingdom coming Uh and and that the Messiah ruling and reigning and being seated upon his throne. Uh, They were just a bit misguided on when Mm -hmm. that would take place. And and how it would take place. Sure. Right? Like they pictured, think about the Davidic covenant. 
right? Like God promised David, there, there's coming a new and better David. There's coming a king who will, his kingdom will not end. And so they're picturing, oh, remember how great it was when David was king and all the nations feared right. us? When every time David went out to battle, he came back with heads of his enemies, right? Like that's what they're picturing. Right. And they're, what are they doing? They're enduring Roman persecution and suffering. So they are looking and longing, saying, God, how much longer until this Messiah will come and free us from this? And Paul, he sees this misconception. He says, guys you're looking at it, but you're not seeing it. So let me put it before your eyes and explain to you that the Christ actually had to suffer. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, that there's coming a Messiah who has to suffer in order to fulfill these prophecies. And in his suffering, he will be killed. And then he must rise from the dead. There must be a resurrection, right? To demonstrate that this is indeed the son of God. Yeah, I mean, it was so... Could we say that Paul is going back to Isaiah 53 here? Could we make a good argument that he's going back there and and other places? I mean, he's talking yes. about he's talking about suffering and he's talking about resurrection. Like is that not just the end of the four gospels? Right. Or right. is can can we honestly go back to the Old Testament scriptures and provide text that demonstrate that the Messiah did indeed suffer. He did indeed die, but also he did resurrect. Yes. Can we do that? Yeah, absolutely. That's a, exactly. That's yeah. what Paul's doing, right? Like the, Paul is, he doesn't have the four gospels in written form right. at this point. Um, but like you said, like this case can be made from the Old Testament, which points, this is why this is so, um, it's so relevant to the bibliology discussion. It, the Bible is consistent. Um, the message is clear. And this is the foundation and the authority of his um, exposition. He is pulling the Old Testament scriptures and making a case that the Christ or the Messiah had to die and he was going to resurrect. And then the end of verse three, he says, now this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So he goes through and basically he does two things. One, he demonstrates there was there. You read the Old Testament. The Messiah is going to suffer. He's going to die. He's going to raise from the dead. That's for, that's argument one. Argument two is Jesus came. He suffered. He died. He raised from the dead. AKA this Jesus. He is the Messiah. Right. Right. Like he, he tries to show them this is who the Messiah has to be. And then he says, OK, you got that now. Now pay attention to this. Jesus already did it. Right. Right. And how did the yeah. how did the how did they respond to that? Uh, well, uh, if you have anything else to add to well, it. Well, no, yeah. Well, I would. I was just going to say uh, before we get to that next point. This is the consistent message, though. That's right. Throughout the Book of Acts, you go back to Acts chapter two, and Peter literally says, "Okay, well, the, the, you crucified him. Yeah. You were the one that killed Jesus." And then he pulls from some Old Testament text that talk about that. Um, Psalm chapter sixteen. And then he he demands for a response. So right. again, Peter's giving that argumentation. He's explaining and reasoning, and, and Paul Paul is doing that as well. So he he's preaching the Christ. He's he's preaching that this Christ did do all of these things according to the the Old Testament. That's right. That's hey, that's right on. Um, and and when Paul makes this proclamation, he makes this um, this reasoning from within the synagogue. You have some who are persuaded. You have some who um, become jealous. There's dissension. There's persecution. Um, 
and the Thessala the Thessalonian um, community there basically drives Paul out of town. Yeah, it wasn't like, <laughs> the message wasn't received right in general well there were some who believed right luke tells us because as we said luke's point the gospel triumphs right so he's going to show even in the midst of persecution even in the midst of hatred even in the midst uh, of a rebellious mob that appears in thessalonica the gospel still triumphs right right? but paul shoved out of town right verse four some were persuaded verse five mm -hmm. some were not persuaded yeah, verse verse six. They uh, they gather up a mob. Actually, the end of verse five. They gather up a mob. They seek to destroy him. Uh, they go to the house of Jason where he was staying. They say uh, these men have turned the world upside down. I love this. I have to stop and talk about this. This phrase, "turn the world upside down," uh, that's literally what the Greek says. Um, their argument was, "Hey, these men have come from Philippi. They've gotten word." Because the gospel triumphs and the good news of the gospel continues to spread. And he says, they are going to come in and turn our world upside down. They're going to create chaos and pandemonium. And it's so ironic, one, because they formed a mob to say this. So they're actually creating chaos and pandemonium. But two, because the world is already upside down because of sin, right? And the gospel is coming to turn the world back right side up. Right. So Yeah, Acts chapter 5, verse 38 and 39 Gamaliel basically says if this is of God you we can't we stop cannot it. stop it yeah. we cannot overthrow it yeah and that's and you see that um, I, I think that's a, a an excellent reference because they can't stop it they attempt to and Paul he actually tells the Thessalonians in his letter he says I wish I could have stayed um, I, I sought to come back to you but he has to go and so he leaves um, by night Verse 10 tells us the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. So under the concealment, uh, middle of the night, there's um, less likely that they might find where they're going. And they actually go to Berea. Now, this is interesting because previously in their travels, they're going on maybe not blacktop, but they're going on the Romans road. Right. Right. Like right. this is the highway, the great uh, famous infrastructure that leads you through the 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 premier cities and and, uh, communities within um, the Roman civilization. But Berea was an out-of-the-way town, one of the early um, uh, resources tell us. This was was not on the main road, right? Like they kind of go out of the way. Now, I think two things are in play here. One, they're trying to uh, protect Paul. But two, God is sovereignly guiding this gospel message to a place in Berea where what happens? What's different about Berea? Well, you've got, it says right here in verse 11, they, they were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. Because mm-hmm. so there's something going on, spiritually speaking, with the congregates, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. that, that are here at this particular location. Yeah, and just to add to uh, what you just previous, previously said about um, reasons why they would be going here. Well, you see it all throughout the book of Acts, the Holy book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding, shutting doors, opening doors. That's right. Shutting Uh, doors because he's opening others. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, by unusual means, it it may seem to the, you know, the the casual reader, God is actually moving them to different locations a majority of the time based on avoiding or getting away from persecution for a, a temporary time. That's right. That's exactly right. And and so they get into Berea. And by the way, uh, when they arrived, guess where they went? Straight to the synagogue. Uh, straight 
Straight to the synagogue. Yeah, despite persecution from previous Jews, because that's who ran them out of town, were the Jews who became jealous of of Paul and his preaching. Um, they go straight to the synagogue. Straight to the synagogue. Well, yeah, Paul, He just in the previous story, he reasoned with them from the scriptures for three consecutive Sabbaths. That's right. So n- now he's, he's booted out of there, basically. We're in another location, right back to the synagogue. So you like, mentioned there's just no stopping this that's, guy. That's right, because the gospel is going to continue to move forward. And you mentioned the Sabbaths. Well, notice that in verse 11, it tells us that these uh, Jews who were more fair-minded, or uh, another translation might say that they were more noble or open to hearing um, than those in Thessalonica, that these Bereans received the word with all eagerness. And get this, they were examining the scriptures daily not on the sabbath only as the previous jews in thessalonica had been but they examine the scriptures daily um and what do they do yeah. what do they do I as mean, they examine the scriptures yeah there, there's so there's so much at play here in verse 11 um they receive the word which again is implying that paul is giving them a clear presentation now I know it doesn't explicitly say, but what, what do you think Paul was doing there? Do you think he was basically giving the same sort of message, Christ from the Old Testament, Isaiah 53-ish? Do you think yes. that's where he may have been going? I think it's absolutely fair uh, to say that because Luke um, references the same setting, goes to the Jewish synagogue, and he um, immediately compares the Bereans' response with the Thessalonian response, um, thereby suggesting that the message was the same. Yeah, that's good. Right? Like he's he's saying these Jews were different than the ones in Thessalonica um, despite having heard the exact same testimony. And that testimony, as Paul's custom always was, was to reason or dialogue or engage in uh, conversation with them from the scriptures. And ultimately, it's always going to point to Christ as the fulfillment of the prophecy and as the one who resurrected from the dead. What, yeah, what does yeah. Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15, by the way? Right, like that. If the resurrection doesn't happen, we of all men are most to be pitied. Yeah, we're, we're in big trouble. Exactly, we, we are still in our sins. It's it's fair to say that without the resurrection, there is no gospel, there is no Christianity. Right, right. So that is the distinguishing mark of Christ. He he says, "I preach Christ, and Christ in all of who Christ is is going to include that resurrection." Right, right. So so that's how. And and the Bereans they examine these scriptures, they pay attention to what Paul's saying. And then they, they go study. They do. They, they <laughs> Paul provides a clear message. They listen intently. They receive the word with all readiness. It says, um, but they they don't they don't just swallow it whole. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, they, this may have been the first time that they were introduced to Paul or been face to face with Paul. Mm-hmm. Uh, would I be safe in saying that? I would think so. Yeah. But this is an out of the way town. Right, so, like yeah. this is off the beaten path. Yeah, so it's possible some buzz had circulated about the Apostle Paul. You know, this guy is now preaching Christ. He's no longer persecuting the way or Christians mm-hmm. or whatnot. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would have been very easy for them to listen to Paul explain the text and then just completely absorb it and soak it in and just go about their day and just automatically believe. Right. Okay, what he said must be right. Yeah, because Paul, yeah, okay, look at what's happening, all these miracles, uh, he keeps going. Yeah, it's got to be legit. Let's just, okay, whatever you say goes, man. Like, you're you're a leader in our, but they don't do that. No, they don't. Not not initially, the, right? Right, and I think we can stop right here. It would be good quickly. This is 
one of the major pitfalls of <laughs> American Christianity. Going to church, listening mm-hmm. to a pastor, a preacher, a teacher, and just assuming because they have that platform or because they're, mm. you know, maybe even using the scripture, just assuming that what they're saying is absolutely biblical. And I, I think that's very dangerous just to yeah. assume without following up like you're about to get to in mm-hmm. th- this particular passage. No, we yeah. can't just stop there. Yeah. It doesn't matter who you are. You have to go into that absorbing what is said, but then test it. That's right. And we've talked about this even amongst men that we love and respect and learn from. Um, I can't tell you every time I open a commentary, every time I open a book or a, the, uh, a systematic theology or, or any, I'm going to learn, but I'm not going to unequivocally wholesale digest right. everything. I am Now, they might be... 100% right, and I might end up 100% agreeing, but I'm going to sift through it. I have to. Um, it doesn't matter who it is. And, and I have to do that with my own my own thinking. I'm not right on everything, so I have to constantly test myself and check myself. Yeah, test right? what we are saying on yes. the podcast, and, please. And, and I would say this, too. How often do you hear somebody say, oh, yeah, Romans 1, boom, 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 you know, Romans 3, but, but okay, did... Did you look at Romans 1 or did you just assume that what is being said um, is actually accurately reflecting the content there, right? Like we we live in this world where it's just immediately on to the next thing, but take the time to go back like the Bereans did. Cause this yeah, is, this here's is, the pattern. Right. Show, show us the pattern. What do the Bereans do? They examine the scriptures. That's, that's key, right? Luke uh, tells us that, Paul reasons with them from the scriptures. What do they examine? They don't examine Paul. I mean, surely they examine some of what Paul says, but what they do is they examine the scriptures to see if what Paul says is true. Like their goal is to properly understand the word of God. And that's what, that's what we have to do. And that's what we are seeking to do in systematic theology As we study. We are seeking to examine the scriptures and to adequately understand if the things that we are claiming or if the things that Paul is preaching here is true. And they do so with what frequency? Daily. I think that's important. Um, yeah, it's, const- it's constant exposure yes. to what God has written. Yes. And, and that's contrasted, by the way, with the Sabbaths from the Thessalonians. Right, like previously, Paul reasons with them on the Sabbath, and that's all we get. It's just once a week they listen. Here, the Bereans are daily as much as we can examine. We're going to examine. It, I think it's fair to say that the uh, study of Scripture characterizes the Bereans. That's who they are. That's that's right. what no. That's what makes them stand out. Well, it's a classic. Te- it's a classic uh, text, right? Uh, because we recall and recite. And go back to this text so often because it's so foundational. If you and I rely on physical food daily, mm-hmm. how much more do we need to rely on spiritual food daily? I mean, they're, they're the supreme example as far Certainly. as a, a group of, of people here, but individually right. assessing and studying and checking. Right. And I mean, it's, it's just a constant exposure 
to right. the Word of God. And we know nothing else about the Bereans. Like in Scripture, we don't have other references to them. We don't have a letter written to the church at Berea. We don't have the angel of the church at Berea in Revelation 2 or 3. Like this is all we have from them, and that's a legacy that they've left. That's a nice one to leave. That's a yeah. great one. They're one of the few uh, positive examples that are seen um, in Scripture um, because of the way that they embrace the word of God. And and it says that many of them, Luke goes on to say yeah. in verse 12, right? Many of them believe. Um, and and the language, especially in the Greek, is more pronounced in the Greek, but the, uh, the language is suggestive that more Jews believe and respond in Berea than in Thessalonica. And the, the point is that as the Jews take seriously the word of God, as they pay attention to what God has said and they examine, more of them come to faith because the word is the means by which God reveals that truth to them. Right. 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 So, so they're, they're embracing Christ because they see how God has revealed. We've discussed revelation previously, how God has revealed himself in his word, uh, primarily through the old Testament. Right. Um, well, we've got people believing, believing the gospel. And this, this is the normal means in which people believe. Yes. It's a good point. The, The gospel has to be preached. It has to be taught. People have to listen and understand it. That's the normal pattern that we see in Romans yes. chapter 10. You, you can't confess that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, that he was raised from the dead, and all of those uh, little nuances there in, in chapter 10, those come by the clear presentation of, of the Word of God and checking to see whether or not those things were actually so. That's exactly and right. Again, we've said it over and over already that the Bereans, are they are the supreme example for... Um, receiving the Word of God, checking the Word of God, believing the Word of God, and investing everything that they had daily to see whether these things were actually so. Yeah, so you're exactly right. Let's let's keep moving on because there's more content. I know uh, we could do this for a lot longer than people probably care to listen, but let's keep rolling because there's more content in Athens. So let's get to Athens and we can maybe camp out for uh, a little bit there. Because there were um, shifting scenes here. Yes. Yeah, so Berea, Luke wraps it up. He talks about the response, but wouldn't you know it, more persecution. This time though, not from the Bereans themselves, but those darn Thessalonians have found out about where Paul went and they come and try again to agitate and stir up the crowds and create this mob mentality. And so what Paul ends up having to do is once again, he leaves for Athens. Um, Luke tells us that this time he leaves Silas and Timothy behind. Um, the idea, uh, I think is, is, clear here that there's discipleship, there's growth, there's maturation, there's, pro, uh, continual proclamation of the gospel that needs to take place. But for Paul's safety, he takes off and he goes to Athens. Okay. And so, um, contextually, um, let me just kind of race ahead. Paul comes into Athens, comes into Athens and his spirit verse 16 is provoked within him. Um, that same word is used, um, in the Greek translation, of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint. So whenever um, the Jews had translated their test, uh, their scriptures into Greek, this same word is used to describe God's hatred of idols. So his spirit is provoked. It It's more than just he was bothered or disturbed. He has a righteous indignation towards them because idolatry is pervasive in Athens. Um, 
one ancient writer said that it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. Like they, there were gods everywhere. Um, yeah, you don't want that to be the banner, right. you know, waved above your residency. Right. Think about Berea and the legacy they left behind. Well, the legacy of Athens, philosophical greatness and massive idolatry. And, um, and, and it's, it's, so prevalent that every building, every edifice, every statue was dedicated to a god. Um, and they had uh, such a superstition about not agitating any of the gods and not giving them credit that they would create gods just in case they didn't know about God, uh, a certain god, and they would call him the unknown god, and they would create a statue for him. And so th- it was just pervasive. And Paul looked around, and he recognized that idolatry is robbing worship of the one true God. And so his spirit is provoked. And then verse 17. Yeah, the guy's relentless. He's, he's relentless. But listen listen to this. Like after verse 16, you get this picture and you expect, here's what I'm expecting is I'm listening. If I'm listening to uh, Luke tell this story, Paul comes into Athens, guys, and he looks around. He sees all these idols and he, oh, his spirit is provoked and he's so upset and he's angry. And so he goes to the synagogue and he reasons with the Jews. And you're going, wait a second. Like why does he not go out into the court and start screaming and and you know, calling down the the judgment of God. Well, his custom is to go first of all to the Jews because the gospel is to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Yeah, Romans one, right? Yeah, exactly. Jew first, then to the Gentile. He has a natural hearing there, and he preaches. He reasons in the synagogue with the Jews. Same thing he's done in previous places, but Luke doesn't camp there. Instead, he transitions. He says, and also he reasons in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. So he, he kind of sets the scene that now we have Gentile hearers, right? So he emphasizes all these different men who come to hear him, the Athenians who um, are just philosophically curious, say, okay, Paul, we'll hear you out. Let's go ahead and hear you. And so verse 22 uh, kind of begins this great, um, it's often referred to as Paul on Mars Hill, um, which is another way of saying that this is Paul in front of the Areopagus or the Council of Athens. Right. And he, he's speaking in the midst of them and take it away, Lance. What, is, yeah, what does he well, say? Yeah, what, but, what's important for us to glean here? Yeah, well, before we, before we get to that, I, I wanted to add again, Paul, Jew and Gentile, he's going to the synagogue he's going to the marketplace like he's not being bashful he's not avoiding confrontation he's not um he's not being timid i mean he's going into the main headquarters mm-hmm. for jews and gentiles straight there but he's also not putting his head down and and um ramming into people either right well, like he's not he's not going out of his way um in order to fight uh, or to engage in uh, conflict for the sake of conflict. Right. Yeah. Right. Ab- you know absolutely. He's not trying to pick fights. He, he's not, yeah, he, he's not trying to go there. Right. And immediately start a brawl or a riot. Right. You know, that's not his intent. His intent is, I love you. Yes. And I want you to know special revelation. I want yes. you to know about, I want you to know about Christ. And in particular here in Athens with all of the idolatry, all of the false gods, all of the false worship, all of the disaster basically taking place, Paul now hones in on identifying uh, identifying who this actual God is. Mm. If they have an understanding right. of God, generally speaking, uh, they, they need some clarification on that. 
Yeah, so and that's what Paul's doing. Right. So would you say then we we've had a previous discussion about general and special revelation. Would you say then, uh, let me read a couple of verses and, and then I'll ask this question. So verse 22, Luke tells us that Paul stands in front of the council of the Areopagus and he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So he acknowledges their, um, their religious tendencies. He says, look around. I see you guys are paying attention to the divine realities around you. Okay. And then he says, for I, as I passed along, as I walked about your city, I observed all of your idols. I also found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What you therefore worship as unknown, let me now proclaim to you. Okay, so here's my question. He looks around, he sees general revelation has taken place, right? Like he says, you guys understand there's something greater than you. You understand that there is... Um, some kind of worship that should take place. And then he says, but you don't know who that is. Yet. Right. That God is unknown to you. Sure. He, he kind of has a play, right? He plays with them. Like they have a, an inscription to an unknown God, which we, we already mentioned was kind of their catch all. But he says, you, you have an, a shrine or a, a, an idol for an unknown God, but let me tell you about the unknown right. God, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, this is Paul's brilliance with the Jew. He's going to go to the Old Testament text, and he's yes. going to draw out from divine revelation that they would affirm is from God. And then with the Gentile here, the, the pagan idolatrous worshiper that is void of any Old Testament understanding, he, he's now going to draw on general revelation yeah. because all people... Again, all people are religious. Uh, they are religious by nature because, again, God has revealed himself, creation, and conscience. So he's going to bring special revel revelation. He's going to bring clarification to what they are doing. This right. unknown God that you claim to be worshiping, let me reset your mind and your focus on who this particular God is. That's a, that's exactly right. And and so he, you, you, you hit on something that's really important that I, I skipped over, but... Luke actually says, as Paul gets into Athens, it, he just says that he reasoned at the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day. Verse uh, 17. He doesn't say he re that he reasoned from the scriptures like he did in verse 2. Now, I think it's fair to assume that he reasoned from the scriptures yeah, sure. in the synagogue, right? But Luke doesn't include that phrase because he wants us to focus on the Gentile. He wants us to focus on the Athenians. So he says he reasoned with them, and like you said, he takes them to general revelation, not the special revelation of the Old Testament because they wouldn't affirm that. But instead he says, let's meet where we can both meet, and that is general revelation. And then he springs from that into special revelation, right? I mean, is that, do you see that that's what he's doing there? Yeah, that, that's absolutely what yeah. he's doing. Because then, you know, this is when he starts talking about God pre-appointing times. Yes. Uh, he talks about God giving life and breath to all things. So he's he, he's narrowing down that broad understanding of general revelation that they have. And then this is when he begins to now trickle into the, the gospel message, that's calling right. for repentance, that's calling right. for belief. Now that there's an acknowledgement of the one true God. Yeah, I mean, he. how does he begin? He says, let me, this God that you say is unknown, I, I want to proclaim the true unknown God to you. And then verse 24, he starts with God as the creator. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it. He, he is the creator, which is, by the way, where special revelation begins. 
uh, that God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So he begins his um, appeal with a foundational truth that they could still grasp because they can see that. They, they can look around them and see the evidences of a creator. And so he says, this God that I'm proclaiming to you did create. And he, he says, pay attention to that. See that. Look around you and see that. And, and then he says, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. So now he starts to, this God has created, and now he's the ruler of that creation. Right? And then he, he goes forward and he continues to proclaim all of the intricacies and uh, highlights the attributes of this God. Um, he, he highlights his transcendence, that he is um, above his creation. He can't be right. contained by temples made by human hands, right? He he's doesn't, to be worshipped. He, he demands worship. He, he, his essence necessitates that he be worshipped. He is self-sufficient. He needs nothing from man, verse 25. He is the sustainer. Uh, of his creation because he gives life to all humankind and breath and everything. In him we live and move and have our being. Right, and he, he's quoting he's quoting uh, pagan prophets, uh, pagan poets there to demonstrate that general revelation that we observe even in ourselves. Uh, he highlights in verse twenty six the sovereignty of God, how he has uh, navigated history in such a way that all the um, nations that have been given power and authority have their seasons of time where they're in control because God has given that to them. And then verse twenty seven, here's a critical verse: He has done all of these things that they might seek God, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. In other words, God has revealed himself so that he might be worshiped. Right. That's back where we started the other episode. Exactly. God is revealing himself for his honor, for his glory, so his creation can worship him. Now, here's here's a really interesting and and powerful testimony to this. Um, uh, A really important point. In verse 27, Luke says, uh, Paul, Luke's recording Paul's words, and Paul says that uh, the purpose and all that God has done as we said, is so that they might worship. And he says, but perhaps that they might feel their way toward him or grope toward him is the the literal translation of the Greek word. It's actually used to describe blind people stumbling into things. Really? Yeah. So the, the picture here is that general revelation, the purpose of this general revelation is that we might accidentally bump into God, right? And so this idea is, we're not really going to look and see God, but we might accidentally bump into him because he has made himself so available to us. Right. Right. Like that's what, that's what general revelation does. And then look at what he does towards uh, the end of his, um, his speech here in verse uh, 28. He quotes the poets, as we've mentioned, verse 29, he argues um, again that we are made in the image of God. And then verse 30, he says that the times of ignorance God has overlooked. In other words, there was a season, right, right where that God did not hold them accountable right. because the gospel had not yet been right. proclaimed, right? God's forbearance, his patience, his kindness, yes. his goodness, his mercy, all displayed to that particular people, that, that people group here at this particular time. Yes. So now, I mean, this is, this is Paul defining what they had been worshiping. It's now the one true God, and he explained that. And then now he's moving into the gospel message. That's he, right. He begins to impart understanding of Jesus Christ, uh, verse 
31, right? Yes. And, and right but right before verse 31, you you've already touched on this, but he says he now commands all people everywhere to repent. Like and God demands that repentance. We, we've talked about that with the gospel message, right? That repentance and a response is necessary, but God has commanded repentance. And then uh, you mentioned the gospel message in Christ, verse 31, you were saying. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, verse 30 and 31, they needed to repent from general revelation standpoint, mm-hmm. and they also needed to repent now because the gospel has been given forth, verse 31, when to clarify, you you're saying they were responsible for their sin because God had revealed Himself right. generally, but now the responsibility and the burden is greater. It is because the true gospel message has been preached. Yeah, the way of salvation has yes. been given to them. They yes. now understand the way of salvation. Yes, is through Jesus Christ. They must repent and turn from their sin and be saved. And if not, they receive worse punishment. And, and speaking of worse punishment, verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. I think it's um, not an accident that Paul's speech here, his sermon, his uh, proclamation begins with God as creator and ends with God as judge. I mean, is that not Genesis to Revelation? Yeah, that, that's the full counsel of God. Exactly. That's the character of God. This is... This is who God is. And and God, because God is creator, God gets to be the judge. And God gets to judge and has the right to judge because he has created. Right. Right? Like these two intertwined realities about God, which serve as bookends of the of the special biblical revelation, are the heart of God of Paul's message and proclamation here in Athens. And he says that he will judge the world in righteousness or uh, with a righteous hand. In other words, he will judge the world perfectly and righteously um, by a man whom he has appointed. Well, who is the one who's going to judge the world that has been appointed to do so? Yeah, this is, I mean, a classic Sunday school answer, right? Yeah, a classic way for Paul to conclude his sermon here. He, it's a defense of the resurrection. It's yeah. a promotion of Jesus, yeah. this person that will judge the world. He's not dead. Like you may have heard, this this Jesus has resurrected, which he goes around promoting constantly, right. which he just did to the Jew in the synagogue, and then now he's doing that to the Gentile. In other words, the, the resurrection, it's not limited to Jews. It's That's not right. limited That's to right. Gentiles. The, the resurrection, like you said, 1 Corinthians 15, is foundational for the salvation of all who will believe mm-hmm. in Christ. Take the take you can't the resu- get away from that. Take the resurrection away and you take Christianity away. Absolutely. Like that is and that's notice what happens. So he gets yeah, down. How, how does chapter 17 end? He proclaims the the resurrection and when he says the resurrection from the dead there he loses his crowd, yep, right? Like there, you the, go. there that is the breaking point. Because Luke tells us that in verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Now, by highlighting those who are mocking, Luke is saying this is the predominant group, right? The the, the normal reaction to the proclamation of the resurrection is mockery. And right. this is a, it's a very, der, like it's a term of derision. It's not a, oh, that poor sweet boy, he's just misguided. Like they are, they are. Um, they actually call him earlier, they call him a babbler. Um, it's literally a seed picker, the Greek says, because he has picked up little bits of philosophy and he ha- he knows just enough to be dangerous. I mean, they are scoffing at him. 
because of this. And by the way, that's what the cross is to the world. It's foolishness. Yeah, it is. That's what Paul says in First Corinthians it's two. Foolishness. It's, it's foolishness. Stumbling block. It's stumbling block to the Jew. It's foolishness to the Gentile. In First Corinthians one and two. Right. Um. But, but, others said, "We will hear you again." And even some men there joined him and believed, among whom were also one of the men from the hundred men on the council of the Areopagus, one of those men, Dionysius, and, and a woman named Damaris and some others, they joined with him. Because even then, the gospel still triumphs, right. right? Yeah, God has his elect. Remember, Paul says in Second Timothy, I do all things for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation. That's He's right. willing to endure the persecution. He's willing to endure... Uh, the mockery, the scorn, the beatings, et cetera, et cetera, because God has people in that town. God has people in that city, and the only way they can believe is to hear the gospel proclaimed. Right. And Paul knows that. I mean, he's relying on the sovereignty of God in all of uh, chapter 17. That's right. So if I'm going to wrap this up for us, I'm thinking about Acts chapter 17. I tried to... Inadequately, but briefly, give a no. That was good. Uh, well, that was good. well, that was we, good. we, you know, that we could go much deeper. Um, but we give, we get a glimpse of the book as a whole. We get a glimpse of Luke's um, purpose and writing, and and we see um, this unfolding narrative. And what Luke is highlighting is Luke is showing us that the gospel is going forth in Thessalonica, in Berea, in Athens. Different means, same gospel, different result, still moving forward, still triumphing. God is still, um, as you said, calling out his elect and and converting um, those uh, to faith. So that's, that's kind of the... That's Luke's purpose in writing this. Yeah. But but we can, from a systematic viewpoint, we can glean so much about Revelation. Right. So, so take away, if you're going to wrap this up, what's your takeaway from the Revelation standpoint or the bibliology standpoint? Yeah, well, I, I mean, my takeaway, I think, is pretty simple. It would be to model and pattern uh, Paul's usage of systematic theology. Yes. On the one hand, with the Jews... He is reasoning with them from the Scripture, so he has a trust and a confidence in the Word of God and that that Word of God is um, is sufficient enough to save people. Uh, but then secondly, when he's in the marketplace and he's reasoning with the Gentiles, he, he is defining the character and nature of God, and he doesn't mind getting that direction from the general revelation, which he knows that they have and which he knows that they understand. Yeah. Um, so my takeaway again would be to pattern our lives um, in in terms of evangelizing after Paul. Yeah, that's really good. Um, how would how would I kind of wrap this up for me? The big yeah, no, I know you have a million takeaways yeah. here because you studied it, but yeah, give it give us one. Yeah. By the way, whenever I when I when I taught this. Um, I had 19 different points of application, if you can believe it. Now, obviously, I didn't get to really highlight those, or but there's so much that we could take away. From yeah, this so passage. yeah, what, but what would I, be your one? I if guess. I'm gonna, if I'm going to take one thing away from this, from uh, from the Reformed informants perspective, right? Like we're talking about systematic theology and how to um, understand the Word of God, but I, I would say just that general revelation and special revelation uh, work together um, to proclaim and to point to um, the glory of God, right? So general revelation, Paul uses and recognizes and says, God has created, he has 
put his image upon us. We can see that he is active and he should be worshiped for that. Right. Um, but yeah, then that's good. even beyond that, he has revealed himself specially. Um, he has made his character, his person, his nature known to us through his word. And then ultimately through, um, the gospel of Christ. And thereby we know the God of the universe, the God of creation, the God who will one day judge, um, this world, the living and the dead, that that God has made himself known um, because he is interested in his worship, his glory, but also so that we might be saved. Right. So, Yeah, that's good. Acts 17. Acts 17. Man, we've, there we've there got, it is. We, we've spent some time in it. Uh, chew on it. Now, be, be some Bereans and go and check us on that. Right? Spend some yeah. time in God's word. Well, hey, if you're not doing so already, make sure you're subscribing to our podcast on iTunes and to our YouTube channel. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook at Reformed Informants and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at R underscore Informants. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics of discussion, feel free to email us at reformedinformants at gmail.com.